For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, I know a lot of us in this room, we're at a, a stage in our lives, we're pretty young. We've got a lot of our life ahead of us. And uh, we're, we're making decisions now in our lives that are going to set us on a course for the rest of our lives. Things like, should I go to college? If so, what should I study? What should I major in? Should I go to grad school? Should I pursue some other kind of training? What kind of job should I take? Where should I live? Should I get married? Who should I marry? Should I marry that person? I hope I don't have to marry that person. <laughs> We've got... Um, all of these decisions, and what's unfortunate, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I'm making all these important decisions and I know less than I'm ever gonna know about life. I, I don't even really understand who I am and I'm making these decisions. It looks like you're just looking into this fog. Well, tonight we've got another decision for you, a very important decision, a decision that um, what God says, you know, based on everything we've looked at so far in the book of Romans, we're at a transition point, which is what do we do about it now? Up until this point in the book, we've only had two imperatives the whole time. And we're going to have three in just these two verses tonight and a whole string of instructions from here on forward. But here's the point where God gets practical, where he says, in light of everything that God has done, in light of everything we've read in the book of Romans, the only logical response is human sacrifice. And we'll see what he means by that as we look at Romans chapter 12. <laughs> what he says tonight is he says you need to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. This is not a literal sacrifice. Uh, but it's the terminology that he uses and we need to understand why. He's going to say what that means, why we should do it, and where to begin. So those are my points tonight. Romans chapter 12. We'll just read both verses because there's only two of them. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Just those two verses, and we'll spend most of our time in verse 1 tonight. Let's just take a look at what Paul is saying here. He says, first of all, therefore, and then there's the old saying, whenever you see a therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. <laughs> and you know it must be true because it rhymes. <laughs> therefore what? Everything in Romans so far because of the bad news that we're all guilty and we deserve the judgment of God. And yet the good news is that God offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ, Romans 3, 4, and 5. And not only that, but he offers power for, for true change, Romans 5 through 8. And not only that, but he's working in human history to bring this salvation to the whole world, Romans 9 through 11. And it's in light of all of this, in light of all the mercies of God, all the grace of God, all the plan of God that we've seen so far, he says in light of all of that, you know, and he, he kind of climaxes this Romans 1 through 11 at the very end of 11 where Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Those are the three verses leading up to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And there's no chapter break in the original writing here. It all just flows in. He says, therefore, if we're charting a course for our lives, then wouldn't we want 
to have this God on our sides who, who has never needed a counselor from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. That's the kind of God we want in our corner directing us as we head into this mysterious fog ahead of us. Therefore, <laughs> and he says, I urge you, brethren. And so it's based on everything that's come before in the book of Romans. And he says, I urge you. And so he's speaking to Christian brothers and sisters. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what this means is they've already received forgiveness through Christ. That's how we become brothers and sisters with each other. And so therefore, this means this is a second decision. Some Bible teachers talk like, in order just to get the forgiveness of God, you have to do everything here, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But he's talking to people who've already made that decision. They've already received that forgiveness. This is something additional, something more. This is why it's called a second decision. This, there's the initial decision to receive Christ, and there's the second decision to become a disciple of Christ. And that is how, that's how Jesus teaches in the Gospels, and that is how the New Testament presents this as well in passages like this. And he says, you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your rational service of worship. So he's using the language of worship, the language of Old Testament temple worship. There's several terms here. He, talk, he talks about a sacrifice in the Old Testament that you required an unblemished animal sacrifice. These were teaching tools that God set up to teach people that there has to be, a, there's a difference between God and people, that he is perfect, that we are not, and that Sin brings death, but that a sacrifice can, can symbolically substitute. You know, I deserve to die because I've sinned, but this animal can symbolically take my place. Of course, it can never really take my place. But symbolically, it takes my place. And he talked about this back in Romans 3. But an unblemished animal sacrifice. And God said, this has to be a perfect sacrifice. You know, he, he confronts them in, in passages like Malachi 1. He's like, look, you guys, you're giving me the sacrifice, but you're basically picking the old blind, diseased, three-legged lamb that you didn't want anyway and that you were going to have to kill either way, and you're bringing that for worship. He says, no, would you bring that to your governor? Would, would the governor be happy with that? Then how, why are you bringing it to the Lord of all creation? It also needed to be a qualified, purified priest. Not just anyone could be a priest. And even those that were selected to be priests from the proper lineage, they had to go through a purification ceremony in order to offer up these sacrifices. Not just anybody could offer up a sacrifice. You had to travel to the temple in Jerusalem. You couldn't do it just anywhere. God confronts them over and over again that they would just sacrifice on any high hill under any green tree. He says, no, it has to be at the place of worship because I don't want you just making up things about me. I want you to go to the place where you're going to learn the message that I want you to learn about what I'm like. And finally, there was a specific sequence of steps that had to be followed. And, you know, these chapters in the Old Testament, they just go on and on and on about, first you've got to do this, and then you've got to do that, and you've got to do this, and this, and this. And if you're ever having trouble sleeping, read the book of Leviticus. And part of, part of the reason it's so boring is because it's irrelevant now. Because what God has set up is a new worship service. And he's turned the old one completely on its head. Under New Testament worship, what do you need for this? Well, it, it moves from the temple, which was only one place in the world, out into everyday life, which is everywhere. It moves from prescribed specific steps that are the same every time to very relational, spirit-led service of God. He doesn't give you a list of steps. 
we follow the principles in His Word, we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we love one another, and we love God. It moves from dead animals to living persons. That's a big difference. You know, if, if, you, if you look in the Old Testament, there's no such thing as a living sacrifice. You don't put an animal live onto the burning altar. You know, you, you would kill the animal, drain the blood, and then there might be some other preparation before that animal could be offered up. And uh, really, there's only, there's only two examples of living sacrifices in the, old, in, in the Bible. And one of them was in Genesis 22 that we studied a year or two ago, was when God called Abraham to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And he never intended him to go through it, and he didn't go through with it. But this was to be a picture of what Jesus, the one true living sacrifice, would one day do when he hung on the cross. He hung on the cross. He offered himself up as a living sacrifice, a true sacrifice for our sins. And now, God adds another living sacrifice. But, here he, but now all Christians are priests. We don't need to go to a priest to do this. You know, what he's saying in this New Testament worship, he says, you're the sacrifice. Also, you're the priest, so you offer yourself up. And you're also the temple, because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And whenever, we, whenever multiple Christians get together, that's in some different and even more and even fuller way, a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. He also says we offer up our bodies and his word choice is very specific here as well. Um, John Stott writes, this blunt reference to our bodies was calculated to shock some of Paul's Greek readers. Brought up on Platonic thought, they will have regarded the body as an embarrassing encumbrance. Their slogan was soma sema estin, the body is a tomb, in which the human spirit was imprisoned and from which they longed for its escape. But Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. It is a significant Christian paradox. No worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Christians have also been influenced to some extent by Platonic thought, and we want to spiritualize everything. And, and it's like the physical is bad, spiritual is good. But what God is saying here is, no, we're out in the real physical world with our real physical bodies doing real acts of service. We're using our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our hands, our feet. Our whole bodies are being used as instruments of righteousness. Remember, we present our, ourselves to God. We present the, the members of our body as instruments to be used by Him to do good. And so this is, you know, we can't think of spirituality as some mystical, distant thing, but it's very real. It's very physical. It's very involved in the physical world, and it makes real significant changes. He also says this offering is acceptable to God. You know, in Leviticus chapter 1, it talked about the, the, the whole burnt offering. Most sacrifices, you only offered part. Leviticus 1, though, says the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you know, when that, when that animal was laid on the altar and it was burned up entirely, you couldn't get that back. You know, that was offered up to God. It belongs to Him now, and it's His. And he says... You're, you, offering yourself up to God. Some of us are like, God wouldn't be very happy with me. But what Scripture says, if you're a Christian, then you're now holy and blameless. And you are now viewed as, a, as perfect in God's eyes, totally acceptable to Him. And he, he would be very happy for you to offer yourself, to offer your life to Him 
as a living sacrifice. And it is a living sacrifice. Like I said, there's been only, you know, you had Isaac, but you really, he pointed to Jesus as the ultimate living sacrifice. And now Jesus says, now you also can follow in my footsteps. And this is what he taught over and over in his ministry. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the call that Christ makes if we want to become his disciple. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. You'll really find your life in that way, in a way that you never knew was life. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's the way to true greatness in the teaching of Christ. It's by becoming last. It's by becoming the servant of all. It's by offering ourselves up, by following the footsteps of the cross. And this true worship is going to affect every part of our lives. You know, we'd like to just be like, well, God, I'll give you this one little part of my life, you know. Um, and God's like, no. It's all or nothing when it comes to this decision right here. And you know, this worship, this worship, Christians are always trying to compress quote-unquote worship into one hour on Sunday morning. And they have the worship service, and they have the worship leader. David Peterson says, the, the presentation of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, now means serving Him in a whole range of relationships and responsibilities. When Christians become preoccupied with the notion of offering God acceptable worship in a church context, and thus with the minutia of church services, they need to be reminded Paul's focus was on the service of everyday life. D.A. Carson to say we come together, quote, to worship implies we're not worshiping God the rest of the time. Yeah, we're doing it, so we only do it one, one hour for one day a week. God says, what about the other seven days a week? What about the rest of the time? He says, that is so out of touch with the New Testament emphases, we ought to abandon such a notion absolutely. The notion of a worship leader who leads the worship part of the service before the sermon, which then apparently is not part of worship, is so bizarre from a New Testament perspective as to be embarrassing. Yes, it's unfortunate that our terminology to call this one hour a week worship, or really just the singing part of that one hour a week worship, it makes it, it, makes it sound like that's what God wants. And what that is, that's an Old Testament understanding of worship. It's localized in a place, in a time, with a set of steps that you follow and words that you say. But God says no. I want all of you. I don't want you for one slice of one day. I want the whole thing. What's involved in that? It's a personal choice between you and God. No one can make this for you. This is not something that someone else can decide for you. This is something that only you can decide. This is also not required in order to be a Christian. And, um, you know, it, it can take some time to work up to this point. It could take months, it could take years of being a Christian before we feel like we're ready to do this. And I think that some of us who have already made this decision and are already convinced, it seems so obvious that there's a temptation to rush other people along into this. And the truth is, if you rush commitment, you get compliance. You cannot rush true commitment. It has to be a persuasion. The person has to be convinced, and it's easy to forget, how long did it take you to get convinced? What were you doing Six months into following God, a year after you became a Christian. 
you realize you were still, if you're like me, you were really struggling pretty, pretty bad. You were not convinced on a lot of things. And so we need to give people the space they need. We want to be helpful, but we want to give people the space they need to really take their time with a decision like this. It's also not to be taken lightly. You know, this is not something you just lunge into. I remember when we were, I was about five years old, we were begging my parents for a dog and I'll take care of it and I'll walk it and I'll feed it and blah, blah, blah. We got a dog and I did that for maybe a day. <laughs> and you know, we had that dog for less than a year before we got rid of it. Uh, you know, it's not something to be entered into lately. There's a lot that's involved in that. You got to count the cost. And uh, Jesus in Luke 14, he tells this story. He says, don't be like the idiot that decided I'm going to build a tower. And then he spent all of his money building this tower. And when he ran out of money, the tower was only half done. And so it was useless. He wasted so much time. He went far enough that he couldn't spend that money on something else. He didn't go far enough that he had something of any use. All he has is a, a pile of rocks. And um, we see people do this. You know, I've had the experience of watching my um, neighbor work on his house for many, many, many years. And this house was the sort of house where it was just slowly falling apart more and more. You know, water started getting in the roof. It started running down inside the walls. It started messing up the wood, the foundation. And he would get out there and he'd get a bunch of wood and he'd rip all the wood off the side of the wall and he would put new siding on there and he would spend all summer hammering away. But, you know, he only went part way. He didn't do enough to actually fix the problem, but he did enough that he spent a bunch of money and a bunch of time watching his house slowly disintegrate. Finally, the city said, you have to move out. You can't live here anymore. And then he, he lived in, in the van in front of his house for six months, all through the winter, thinking, I'm going to get around to fixing my house. And finally, I went out to him one day. It was, it was 10 degrees outside, and I, I knocked on the window, and I said, man, you've got to do something here, man. I don't think you're going to get your house back. I think you might need to sell your house, because I'm worried that you've taken out a loan now, but that you're not going to be able to do enough in time to fix this thing, and you're going to lose your investment entirely. And it was interesting. He put that house on the market. Somebody bought it. Three weeks later, this guy knew what he was doing. He had a team of seven people on that house, round the clock. They ripped all the siding off. They removed every board on the back of the walls and the sides of the house. They just went board by board, replacing every rotted one. They replaced every board in the rafters on the roof. They replaced the entire plywood on the roof, the entire roof, all of the siding. He went to the one side where the foundation was crumbling, jacked the house up, ripped the wall down in the basement, rebuilt the wall out of cinder block, and lowered the house back down onto it, re-poured the sidewalk around it. And then he had to rebuild the floor inside the house because that had to get ripped out as well. And now it's starting to look like a house. <laughs> but you see, he knew it needed to be done and he went hard for it. And he actually got that thing into shape where it's a house again. And some of us were just kind of slowly hammering away at our Christian lives. And we're not really getting anywhere. We're just wasting a lot of time and we need to either be all in or we need to head a different direction. This is going to affect every part of your life. You know, my comfort. Well, like, God, I'll follow you as long as I'm comfortable. As long as I get my nine hours of sleep every night. And God's like, no, actually, it goes on the altar. If you're going to make this decision, it goes up there. 
Well, God, um, my possessions, that's where I draw the line, you know. Um, my, my car, I love my car. I can't just let people use my car. And God says, no, actually, it's my car now. Okay, okay, God, but what about my laptop? Surely there's a limit somewhere. God says, you mean my laptop? <laughs> okay, Lord, but my money? My money, that's my business. And God says, you mean my money? It goes on the altar. Okay, God, but what about my non-stick Teflon cookware? that my roommate is using, he's eating mac and cheese with a metal fork out of it right now. <laughs> or should I say mac and cheese and Teflon? And God says, you mean my nonstick cookware? My relationships, Lord, I'll, I'll do anything. As long as I have my family's approval. And God says, no. Jesus says, I didn't have that. Why would you get it? You don't necessarily lose it, but is that, that needs to be on the altar. As long as I get to pick my friends, as long as I don't have to be around annoying people, and God says, how do you think I feel? <laughs> that goes on the altar. He says, he says, you know, you might actually be surprised. You know, a lot of my closest friends I, I, were not people I was drawn to at first, and yet God knew what I needed. God knew the way to true happiness. What about my plans for my life, my hopes and my dreams? We're like, God, yeah, um, I'll follow you as long as I don't have to be a missionary. Or as long as I get to be a missionary, I'll follow you. And God says, no. It goes on the altar. Um, I, I can't live somewhere where it's very cold, God. Or I have to live near mountains as long as I can do that. And God says, no, it, it goes on the altar. Um, I, get, I get to decide who I'm going to marry. And God says, well, I may have some input on that as well. You might not really know the kind of person you want to marry. I know the desires of your heart. And I know the path you need to take to get there. And God says, all of this goes on the altar. Every part of your life. There's no holding back if you're going to make this decision makes you wonder, why would someone ever do this? Well, he says one here. He says, by the mercies of God, it's because of what God has already given you. You know, in pagan religion, you gave a sacrifice in hopes of getting something from the God. And this is the opposite. God has already given you everything. And now, he says, in response, you offer up your very self as a living sacrifice. It's also because the alternative is pitiful. You ever seen a, a half-hearted Christian? It's like they're not committed enough to God to really see how good it is to go for Him. But they're not committed enough to the world to see how bad it is to really go for that. And so, you know, it's like you're with your, 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 your worldly friends and you're partying, but you're feeling guilty the whole time. And I know because I've been here. And you're like, I shouldn't be doing this, and God is convicting you, and God is blocking your plans sometimes, or God is making sure you get busted. And then you're with your Christian friends, and you're like, oh, praise Jesus. But you know you're lying. You know you're a huge hypocrite, that your heart's not in that either. 
and you just keep getting pulled back and forth, and you're just standing at this fork in the road, and you just keep taking two steps down one, and then two steps back, and then two steps down the other one, and two steps back, and your whole life, you spend years, decades, just doing this same thing, not getting anywhere. It's pitiful. The lukewarm Christian. There's also the positive side here. The best parts of the Christian life are available only to those who go all in. God says here, why do we, why do, we do this? He says, be, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not just your body, it's your mind as well that God wants. So you can prove by experience what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so it's where you know by experience just how awesome it is to follow God. You can see other people that seem happy. You can hear stories. But it's only when you have firsthand experiential knowledge that you can know from experience just how good it is, just how awesome it is to follow God. It's like deep sea fishing, okay? You know, if you go deep sea fishing every three, four years, you're probably going to spend that entire ride puking over the side of the boat. And you're going to get back and you'll be like, man, deep sea fishing sucks. But if you talk to somebody that does that for a living, that does it all the time, they would tell you they see the fish that you've only dreamed about catching. They see the ocean in a way that you've never imagined. And they will talk about the incredibleness of deep sea fishing. And if you're like, well, I tried it and it sucked. They'd be like, you never tried deep sea fishing. You tried it once, this half-hearted version of it, and you, you gave up. You didn't stick with it long enough to see how good it is. Or swimming. You ever have like an experience where you're like, okay, I need to get in the pool, and the water's a little bit cold. And your friends are there like, oh, it feels so good. Jump on in. You're like, you know, I think I'm just going to kind of just kind of like lower myself. And you're like, and you're like, ooh, that's cold. And you're like, let me try it again. And you're like, oh, that's, that's cold. That's cold. And you just kind of, uh, no, it's, it's, it's just too cold. You just got to jump in. And some of us, this is what we're doing in our Christian lives. We're just sort of lowering in. We're like, oh, I don't know about that. And we're kind of getting out. And then we're kind of, uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll go a little, oh man, that was a really bad experience. I went a little farther than last time and it felt colder. <laughs> and, and I've talked to people before that are like, you know, I tried the Christian life and it wasn't for me. It just wasn't any good. It wasn't all it's cracked up to be. And to that kind of person, I would say, you know, you, you can't possibly have ever tried it. Because if you had, you would know how good and acceptable and perfect it is. What you tried was some hypocritical half-baked version. So don't go around telling people you tried Christianity. Maybe you should try it and taste and see that the Lord is good before you go around passing judgment on it. I like to just read quotes from people that really get it. And I've assembled eight or so here that I just wanted to share with you guys. Ones, these are your quotes that I've, that it's, there's certain quotes you read and then like several years later you're like, remember exactly where you were when you read that. These are some of those. That's what I put together here. D.L. Moody. I remember this from the, the very first year I was walking with God. Somebody told me about him. He was a 19th century Christian pastor and author and 
He was not an educated man, but when he was young, someone laid down a challenge for him. They said, Dwight, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in and by the man or woman who is fully and wholly consecrated to him, given over, set a, to, set themse- to set yourself aside for the service of God. And he said, I, I will try my utmost to be that man. That was the commitment that he made. And he did incredible things for God. We're still, I mean, I'm reading a quote from him 120 years later after his death. And yet if Moody were here today, he would say, the world has yet to see what God can do with someone who is holy and fully consecrated to him. And will you be that man or woman? Chuck Smith, his, in his memoir, he tells of a saying that he heard when he was a young man. He had all these plans. He was going to be a, a doctor. And um, he went and heard this Christian teacher. And what the teacher said was this, only one life will soon be passed, and only once done for Christ will last. We have only one life, it'll soon be passed, and only once done for Christ will last. And again, you know it's true because it rhymes. <laughs> it's definitely memorable. But it, for him, it just put into, a, it put into perspective the shortness of this life, and it's so short. And the temporariness of anything other than what's done for him. Joseph Son, he came here Came, he came here in 1998. He was a pastor in Romania under the communists, persecuted heavily. He was in jail. He came here and gave his testimony in 1998. I still remember sitting under that testimony. And what he said at the end was, he says, people always ask me how I could have given up so much for God. But I tell them, I never gave up anything for God. I only traded garbage for treasure. That's how he saw a life of persecution and martyrdom. He was the guy that got, verse 2, he was able to, to prove what the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. This is this, the perspective we start to have. We start to, instead of be conformed to the world and its values, we're transformed. Our mind is renewed. We start to see if you want to become great, you become the least. If you want to save your life and find your life, you lose your life. These are the teachings of Christ. Jim Elliott missionary to um, a tribe in uh, South America, was killed by a cannibalistic tribe when he was 28 years old. His wife writes his story. His wife, who later went and witnessed to that tribe and led them to Christ. But she tells of something her husband used to say. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're giving up what we cannot keep to lay up treasures in heaven, to gain something we cannot lose, which is what Jesus said. Walter Henriksen, in his book, Disciples Are Made Not Born, he talks about this. He says, it's God's design that every believer be a disciple. That's what God wants for you. But when he goes back on his commitment, he becomes good for nothing. You can't save him. He's already saved. You can't use him. He's unavailable. He's too busy with the world. Week after week, you see him going along to church, and he becomes an example of what not to be. All you can say to your Timothy, your disciple is, you see that man? 
He's a believer who's refused to pay the price of becoming a disciple. In making that decision, he has relegated himself to a life of mediocrity. Given a chance to be first, he has chosen to be last. To use the words of the Lord Jesus, he is savorless salt. Whatever you do, don't become like him. I guess all of our lives will demonstrate the glory of God. It will just be as an example or a warning. Charles Spurgeon, very powerful preacher and author in the 19th century in London. Here's his sermon on Joshua 24:15, a verse that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very famous quote from the Old Testament where Joshua is challenging the whole nation of Israel. You guys, I guess if you don't want to serve God, then you should pick one of the many idols. There's plenty of choices. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's what Spurgeon says. Here's a way of putting things. He says, if the Christian religion be a lie, it's a most detestable one and it ought to be abhorred heartily. But if the service of God be indeed right, it demands our whole heart and soul and strength, nor should it have less. Yeah, if this is false, we've, we've all gone way too far already. But if it's true, none of us have gone far enough. If after all the world and the things thereof be best, say so and take your side. And this morning, if not another person should do it, say in your heart, as for me and my house, we will serve ourselves in the world. Just be honest. If you mean it, say it straight. Don't cloak it. But for a man to say, I cannot determine what I shall serve, but I rather think I shall serve myself till I get pretty nearly worn out. And then I shall turn about and try what is to be done with God. He says, that is detestable. Such beings are hardly as respectable as oxen and asses, which at least know their owners. We don't know who we belong to. And then he, he ends with this word picture. He says, I can see where you are, you betweenites. There is the army of God, a vast and mighty host on yonder hill. I see the glittering warriors ready for the fray. And then yonder encamps the host of Satan on the opposite hill. Black and grim is the prince, and fierce are they that follow him. Where are we this morning? Some of us can say we're with Prince Emmanuel, though we're poor warriors, yet we serve under his standard. Possibly there are some here who are on the wrong side, but they're yet so honest that they will not deny that they're enlisted on the opposite side. But my hearers, where are you? Oh, where are you? Oh, we're all thinking about it. We're thinking about it. But where are you while you're thinking? Uh, we're considering and judging. <laughs> but where are you now? Mark this. When the fight comes on and our Lord's artillery shall come into play, and when the adversaries, on the other hand, reply to us, you will receive the shot from both sides. And when the armies come to deadly hand-to-hand -hand fight, you'll be trampled down by both. <laughs> Vicious. But again, it's like we're living, in this, we're living in this country between two regions that are at war. Francis Schaeffer, I really love this story here. So he was, he was one of the great Christian um, leaders of the 20th century, had a huge impact through his writing and his ministry, him and his wife together, really. And um, this is her book, The Tapestry, which she wrote near the very end of his life. 
Um, <clears throat> this was, she's talking about a point in his life where he was 19 years old and he felt he had become a Christian and he had been a Christian for a year or two and he felt just this incredible call from God to drop out of his college major and go enlist in Bible college. And his parents were not believers and they were not happy about this decision. And she says, early in September, the day came when packing for college could no longer be put off. They basically didn't talk about it all summer and just hoped he would change his mind. He begins packing, she says, and a grim-faced mother turned her back as if no packing were going on. Also, at this point, Fran still had no idea how he was going to pay for college, even though he was leaving tomorrow. Before he went to bed, Pop said, get up in time to see me before I go to work, 5.30 a.m. When Fran came down in the morning, Pop was standing by the front door. Turning to give Fran a long, hard look, he said, I don't want a son who is a minister, and I don't want you to go. It was the end of his dreams for his son, dreams of a son who would work with his hands and be a good, honest worker. Dreams of a son who might be a little further along in education, but who would continue to work around with him and maybe live on the same street. Dreams of a son he would be proud of by his standards were being destroyed by a harsh daylight of reality. How many fathers and mothers have stood by a door like that one and said, I don't want a son whose life is going to be made up of putting God first. I don't want a son or daughter whose ambition for blank and a variety of things would be inserted, fame, power, success, affluence, leadership, is being put aside for anything so ridiculous as following God. I don't want a religious son. I don't want a religious daughter. So very, very many people can identify with Fran in that moment as they have also stood one by one with a father or mother or both, confronting them with a choice. Who are you going to choose to follow? We can go back and place this picture of Joshua as kind of a transparency on top of the scene. Whom will you serve? Century after century, sons and daughters have stood with two ways before them. This is nothing new, this choice. Making a choice that might seem too trivial to parallel Joshua's plea for choice, but which is really a central choice. There comes a time, a moment, a choice that is stripped of all other factors and becomes a basic thing of truly putting the Lord first. It isn't recognized as central sometimes, and often people think they can just make the choice later on, not recognizing how much more difficult that's going to be. Century after century, we could follow the story of the Calvins and Luthers, the prisoners of Kilion and others, finding places where they made central choices that turned the direction not only of their own lives, but the lives of many, many other people. So very often, when we stand in the place of Joshua, there's no troop of people in sight. Our declaration, as for me in my house, seems a little feeble, feeble little commitment because there's no one else in sight. Yet a choice is being made in a very real way for all the unborn sons and daughters of another generation. 
Will the choice to serve the Lord and to obey Him, first of all, push away a mother and father eventually? I believe the answer is no, she says. It will not make it harder eventually for them to come to the truth. But mother and father are not all of our household there are to consider. Whether we are to have physical children and grandchildren or not, there are spiritual children and grandchildren to be considered. You don't know the plans God has for your life. The choice we stand and make in early daylight or twilight with no one watching is not unwatched at all, but eagerly viewed, I believe, by angels and demons who know that our choice is going to have a tremendous effect in the tapestry God is weaving. Well, in the dim light of 5.30, the milkmen were not yet rattling their bottles in their baskets, and silence stood like a pillar between Fran and his father, an agony of silence. Then Fran asked in a strained voice, Pop, could you give me a few minutes to go down into the cellar and pray? In a fear of uncertainty as to what to do, he went down and wept and wept, hot tears of sorrow for his father. He knew there was a choice that must be made in minutes, and he wanted to make it exactly as God would have him make it, but how to know what the will of God was? And so he prayed, and he got an answer from God. Go. And so he went upstairs, and he walked to his dad and said, Dad, I've got to go. His dad looked hard at him and then went out to slam the door. But just before the door hit the frame, his voice came through. I'll pay for the first half year. (laughs) It was many years later that Pop became a Christian, but Fran thinks this moment was the basis of his salvation. Full of a mixture of emotions, Fran went up to his room to get last-minute things ready, and what hit his eyes was a text he'd stuck up on the wall some time before. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. It seemed an added underlining of his choice. And that's the thing. Francis Schaeffer, he went on to become one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. But he had no idea. He's a, some guy in the middle of nowhere going off to Bible college in the wee morning hours having a choice to make. There were so many others that would eventually be affected, not just his, his own family, but the many spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that would come from their ministry. This is what's on the line here. eternity, people's destinies, not to mention rewards in heaven. All right, let me give you a final one from Watchman Nee here, okay? Nee says this, if you're a Christian, God has marked out a pathway for you, a course, as Paul calls it. Not only Paul's path, but the path of every Christian has been clearly marked out by God, and it is of supreme importance that each one should know and walk in the God-appointed course. Lord, I give myself to you with this desire alone to know and walk in the path you've ordained. That's the true giving he's talking about. If at the close of a life we can say with Paul, I've finished my course, then we're blessed indeed. There's nothing more tragic than to come to the end of life and know we've been on the wrong course. And you will know it. God's not trying to be sneaky or hide his will from you. We have only one life to live down here, and we're free to do as we please with it, but if we seek our own pleasure, our life will never glorify God. It is our wills that are in question here. That strong, self-assertive will of mine must go to the cross, and I must give myself wholly to the Lord, 
to do as he pleases with us. If we give ourselves unreservedly to God, many adjustments may have to be made in family, business, church relationships, the matter of our personal views. God will not let anything of ourselves remain. His finger will touch point by point everything that's not of him, and it'll say, it's got to go. Are you willing? It's foolish to resist God and always wise to submit to him. And we admit, many of us still have controversies with the Lord. He wants something, we want something else. Many things we dare not look into, dare not pray about, dare not even think about, lest we lose our peace. We can evade the issue in that way, but to do so will bring us out of the will of God. My giving of myself to the Lord must be an initial fundamental act. Then day by day I must go on giving to Him, not finding fault with His use of me, but accepting with praise even what the flesh finds hard. Yes, there's an, it's kind of like marriage where there's this initial decision, but then there's, there's a lot of daily decisions to confirm that commitment. I'm the Lord's. I no longer reckon myself to be my own, but acknowledge in everything His ownership and authority. I don't, consider my, I don't consecrate myself to be a missionary or a preacher. I consecrate myself to God to do His will wherever I am, in school, office, kitchen, or wherever He may in His wisdom send me. Whatever He ordains for me is sure to be the very best, for nothing but good can come to those who are wholly His. May we always be possessed by the consciousness that we are not our own. We belong to God, the good and perfect an all-powerful creator. So where do we begin? The first thing is to make sure you've made the first decision. Second decision might sound kind of cool to some of us. Maybe it doesn't, but either way, you need, to, you need to make sure you've made that first decision to receive the forgiveness that Christ is offering. That is the starting point. That's what Romans has been talking about in the earlier chapters. But then, when it comes to the second decision, don't rush it. I'd say be patient with this. You need to be fully persuaded of this. So I, I think make a list of reasons and verses. That's helpful for some people. I would talk to God. I would talk to other people about it, other wise people, about what you're thinking. I would ask God to open the eyes of my heart. There's a spiritual revelation here, a spiritual breaking in of the light of God. And only that can help us to really see things for what they really are. Paul says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in Ephesians 1. So you can really see things clearly. And if you're not ready, I wonder if there are smaller steps you can take for God to prove his faithfulness in smaller areas. I also wonder about doing some reading, sometimes uh, doing some reading on apologetics where you just see how true Scripture is and the Christian worldview is. Uh, sometimes reading Christian biographies can be very inspiring. Sometimes just reading good theology books and you just see how it all fits together. And you get convinced at a deep level that this is the decision I need to make. But if you are ready, God, tell God that you are. Sit down with Him and have a conversation. Tell Him Tell him, I want this. And be prepared for him to fill out the implications of that decision for the rest of your life. You know, even, even as I've made this decision, I've reached, you know, several years down the road, and I'm like, oh, it involves that too. I didn't even realize I was holding out on that, and yet God has moved into another area of my life. And then begin to pursue the renewing of your mind. This is more than just reading Scripture as a means of growth. This is 
This is forming an entire Christian worldview where you see life, where you see the world from God's perspective. And that's going to give you resistance against being conformed to the world, and it's going to aid in God transforming and renewing your mind. And just to close on a personal note, this is a decision that I've made. I can't point to a particular date and time like some people can, uh, partly because I didn't really come under teaching like this until several years into my Christian walk. But there was a time when I, did not, when I had not made this decision, and then there was a time later where I definitely had. And I can tell you this has been the best decision in my life, next to the decision to receive Christ. And when I think back to when I was sitting in a position that so many of you guys are, looking ahead, looking at the fog that was my future, I didn't know how things were going to turn out. It's pretty scary at times. There were a few things where I was like, I know that this is going to happen, and I couldn't have been more wrong on those things that I was so certain of. But what I found was that even as I stared into the fog, this decision became my compass. This decision right here, to hand my life over to God, to put my life in His hands, this became my north star, my map. This became the light I could shine into the fog and to shine light on these, all these other decisions that needed to be made, these very important life, life-shaking decisions. I had this one in place first, and I knew I had a God to lead me into the others. And so even, the, even as foggy as things looked, I knew that God is still God, that God is still good, that God's Word is still true, I knew that God has promised He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Even when I was feeling anxious, which was quite in- intense at times, almost on the verge of panic attacks about my future and am I heading the right direction, I knew I could cast all my anxieties on Him because He cares for me. I knew, I knew that I just needed to follow the course. He had a course marked out for me from before the foundations of the world. I needed to follow in that course, and he would help me do that. And you know what lesson I learned? I learned that there's something a lot better than trying to be in control of everything all the time. It's learning to trust and to follow and to hand things over to the only one who's really in control. And that's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Yes, Lord, we want to see things clearly. We want to live a life that counts. We want to live a life that matters. And um, it's hard to trust you sometimes. But it's not because you haven't done enough to earn our trust, Father. So I, I pray, Lord, for, for anybody here who hasn't made that first decision, that they would enter into that relationship with you that will never be broken, where you'll always be there for them, Lord, and that will put them in a place where they can take you up on your other offer your offer, your invitation to become a disciple of Christ. And I pray that you would show those of us here who we're not sure the next steps in making that decision, I pray you'd show us the way you promised to lead us into all truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a fellowship where people are really genuinely making a convinced decision on this and are living the kind of lives that are going to be great witnesses to everybody else, including the watching world. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.